open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 6 to 10 tonight. Following on from last week, uh, sort of a part two, if you will, we were looking last week at how uh, Titus is taught by Paul to teach what accords with sound doctrine. So we talked about that as a life that fits with our Christian identity, that there is a way to live as a Christian that God calls us to. And we're going to see tonight that this way to live doesn't just fit the gospel, but it actually it beautifies the gospel. We're actually going to see how it adorns the gospel and makes the gospel attractive. And the beautiful thing is that in this passage, that these directions are given to different demographic groups. Different things are said to the old and young, to men and to women. Last week, we looked at older men and women, as well as younger women. And this week, we'll be looking at men, technically younger men, but we saw that that could probably relate to anyone under 60 or those still with kids in the house. So men, and then also church leaders, and then uh, employees is what we're going to look at. So uh, read with me as we look at Titus 2, 6 to 10. Coming just after Paul has given instructions to the young women, he says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself, in all respects, to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That's going to be our theme for this evening, a life that adorns or beautifies the doctrine of God our Savior. It's, a, it's an addition that's given particularly in this command to bond servants, but it would be equally, equally applicable to anyone living in accordance with the way God would have them live. It's a way to, in a sense, make the gospel message attractive. Some translations render it that way. To make the gospel attractive through the way you live. That the beauty of your life would draw people to the beauty of the gospel. Um, if you are, say, making a dish for a potluck, like perhaps the upcoming church potluck, uh, you'll know that one of the best compliments you can get if you make a dish and bring it somewhere is when someone comes up to you after eating it and he says, I would love the recipe. That was so good. What is the recipe? And that's the way we would love it to be with our Christian lives, that the way we live is, is a, so appealing, so aromatic of the gospel, if you will, that people want to know what is the recipe. What creates this sort of life? And we can point them to the gospel. That's what it means to have a life that adorns the gospel. And we're going to see this in how men can do this particularly, church leaders can do this particularly, and then employees. So those are going to be our headings. We're going to look at mature men, model ministers, and missional employees. So look with me at verse 6 as we look at how mature men can adorn the gospel by displaying the beauty of self-control. Paul writes, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's interesting. This idea of being self-controlled is actually the only command given to each of the groups. The elders in chapter 1 are called to be self-controlled, the older men and women, and the younger women, as well as the young men. This is the one commonality. So this is not just for men. Everybody needs this quality of self-control. But when it comes to the young men, this becomes the sort of comprehensive command. 
I think it's significant. This is the only thing Paul says for the men. Be self-controlled. Because for men, this is very often the greatest battle. The battle to subdue the raging passions of the flesh. We think of especially the passions of the physical appetite, of the emotional temper, of sexual lusts. These passions pervade our culture just as they did Crete. We saw in chapter 1 verse 12 how we were told of the culture of Crete that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. They were malicious. They were deceptive. They were self-indulgent. We're also, we also know from history that this island of Crete was an incredibly sexually immoral place, filled with perversity. And in many ways, this reflects our own culture. And the temptations to indulge the flesh, to show no restraint when it comes to the passions of the flesh, we know the destructive force that these can be. We know how an unrestrained appetite harms and destroys our own bodies. We know especially how an unrestrained temper, how unrestrained sexual lusts destroy marriages, ruin families. We see this all around us. The destructive behavior of unrestrained lusts is extremely powerful. And so we have great need, great need, brothers and sisters, to cultivate the grace of self-control. And so the question becomes, how do we learn this grace of self-control when temptations to follow the flesh just pervade the cultural air around us? This is the cultural air we breathe. How can we be self-controlled? How can we cultivate this grace? Well, let's see, what does Paul mean by this idea of self-control? What Paul means here is maybe slightly different than we might think of it. This word literally could be translated as sober-minded. Or to be of sound mind. It doesn't pop up that much in the New Testament. And the main place we actually see it is if you you remember the story of the demoniac in the Gospels. Where Jesus crosses over and there's this guy filled with a legion of demons. And we're told that he's like out among tombs, naked, cutting himself with rocks. Really, in a sense, out of his mind. But when he meets Jesus, he's restored He's clothed, and it says the disciples come and they find him sitting in his right mind, sitting sober-minded. That's the picture here, that if you think of our lusts, our desires of the flesh, it's like being in a crazed state. We're just running after what our flesh wants. But to be sober-minded and self-controlled is to have a mind that has come and brings our flesh that just wants what it wants under the control of a gospel-renewed mind. That is, it's a call to see our passions controlled instead of letting them control us. Because you see, the passions of the flesh are really natural desires. And it's almost as if, if you think of a horse. A horse is a powerful animal. And if the horse wants to go somewhere and you're riding it, you don't really have too much say about it. And the passions of our flesh, they can want to get going and going and start running. And we're liable to get thrown off and get hurt. But self-control is that quality of reining in those unrestrained desires. Uh, If you've ever ridden a horse, boys and girls, you might have quickly learned that the thing you're supposed to say is, whoa. You pull on the reins and say, whoa. And that's kind of what self-control is to our flesh that wants to run. We need to rein it in and say no to the passions of the flesh and direct these in the right paths that God has for them. 
in helpful and beneficial ways. We have need to be self-controlled. But here's the problem that we quickly run up against when we try to be self-controlled in this way. We quickly realize that often the passions of our flesh feel too strong for us. And we think, I can't control this flesh. I just end up doing the things I don't want to do again and again. I give into my temper. I give into my appetite. I give into my lusts. And the question is, where can I actually get this? I don't have enough willpower. But here's the thing I want you to note tonight, is that self-control is not a fruit of willpower. It's a fruit of the spirit. You're never going to live the self-controlled Christian life you want by willpower alone. It's not a fruit of willpower. It's a fruit of the spirit. And so what you need in order to gain the grace of self-control is a closer walk with the spirit of God. This is what Paul teaches in Galatians chapter 5. He says in verse 16, But I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. Uh, The Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren comments on this, saying something I really loved. He says, The only way to overcome the corrupt desires and propensities of our nature is by submitting to the influences of the Holy Spirit. And it is wiser and more blessed to rely on this overflowing influence than to attempt the hopeless task of coercing these desires by our own efforts. And this is the trap we often fall into, is that we're just focused on the sin itself. And our thought is often, just don't mess up. And this mindset is really harmful, this mindset of just don't mess up. This mindset where all we're concerned about is how long we've gone without messing up. Uh, This is not helpful for really anything. If your focus is don't just mess up, um, think of it if you've ever tried to learn a sports skill, right? If any of you golf, working on your swing, or working on your batting swing, or shooting a free throw, if all you're thinking about is just don't mess this up, just don't mess this up, guess what? You're probably going to mess it up. Because if we're only focused on the negative, that's where we're drawn. But a life that where we walk by the Spirit, we keep in step with the Holy Spirit, is a life that sees every temptation as an opportunity for spiritual joy. Not just an opportunity for the shame of failure, but an opportunity for the joy of victory. And this mindset is very helpful. Um, maybe this illustration will help. If you parents were teaching your, one of your boys or girls how to ride a bike, and you're trying to teach them how to get pedaling, to do their first few pedals, And all they're worried about is just not falling, just not falling off the bike. And maybe you've practiced, and they've actually pedaled a bit, and they've gotten going, and they did their first ride, and they come back to you, and you're all excited, like, hey, look, you just rode a bike. And they get off, like, well, at least I didn't fall. You know, I guess guess it's a pretty good thing that I didn't fall off the bike. You think, what? You're, You're missing the point here. The point is that you rode, and we can rejoice in what you did together. And this is how we ought to think of our battles with temptation. A battle with temptation is not just an opportunity to avoid feeling shame. If we recognize that the Holy Spirit's with us in everything we're facing, then we can encounter a temptation thinking, I have an opportunity to show forth the fruit of the Spirit in my life. And when I say no to the flesh, the Spirit and my spirit will rejoice together for this feat that's just been accomplished. 
And in that sense, temptations are not just opportunities for shame, but we can look at them all and say, I have an opportunity to overcome this because I love Jesus, and I will get to experience the spiritual joy that comes from a temptation defeated. And so when you recognize this, you can live every day waking up, saying, Holy Spirit, I'm going to rely on you today. Strengthen me, empower me to fight the flesh. And I'm thinking, even as I look forward to today, that temptations are going to come to me. But I'm going to say no, because I want the joy of living a spirit-filled, fruitful life. I'm going to be ready to say no, and I'm going to be ready to rejoice when I walk this day by the power of the Spirit. Rejoicing to know that God is on your side. As we cultivate a grace of self-control, it's a fruit that is a positive good in the Christian life. And so men, as you grow in this grace of self-control, what you actually grow in is a life of joy. And this life of self-controlled joy is infectious. And it witnesses to those around you of the goodness, the savoriness, the beauty of the gospel. This is the life we're called to live. This is the life that Titus was instructed to instruct the young men in. And it was actually a life that Titus himself was called to model. And so take a look at the next verses there. As we see how not only young men can adorn the gospel, but also ministers or church leaders. How model ministers can adorn the gospel by displaying the beauty of soundness. So he says, look at verse 7. Show yourself, he's speaking of Titus here, in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So what Paul's saying to Titus is that church leaders, that is those who minister, are called to be models of sound and healthy doctrine and life. They're supposed to do this leading by example, an example of good works, and do this in their teaching. We looked at this a few weeks back in chapter 1, the traits of godly leaders, the traits of ungodly leaders. So we're not going to spend too much time on it now. But I do want to point out how there's a real sense in which leaders, church leaders, are watched more closely in these things. He says in verse 8 that you ought to live in this sound way so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Opponents of the gospel love pointing out the flaws of church leaders. Because when you can point out the flaws of the leader, you get an opportunity to, in a sense, discredit the whole. That's why you'll notice opposing political parties spend so much time trying to point out the moral failings and flaws in the other leader. Because they know that if they can try to discredit the leader, then it can call the whole party into question. You know, people do this. And they do the same thing in the church. A pastor falls into sin. Ah, I knew that this whole thing was a farce. I knew this, there was nothing to this. Christians are just hypocrites. So leaders do bear a special responsibility to model soundness in faith and in teaching. And so I just encourage all of us to be, be praying for your leaders. Leaders that are current, leaders that will be. Because we need to pray that God will uphold them. That they would be self-controlled. That they would not fall into error of doctrine or error of life. So let's be people who pray for our leaders, that they would show forth the beauty of a sound life and a sound ministry. And so we've seen how a young man can show forth the beauty of the gospel. 
Ministers can show forth the beauty of the gospel. But this last one isn't really a demographic group. It's actually something that's applicable to many of us across all sorts of demographic lines. And that's what we're going to call missional employees. We want to look at how missional employees can adorn the gospel by displaying the beauty of submission. So take a look at verse 9. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So this is talking here about bond servants. And I want to tell you how we go from bond servants to employees. So the first question here is, what is a bond servant? That's not a term we naturally use, boys or girls. You've probably not heard very frequently the term bond servant. Uh, But this is actually the Greek word doulos, which is really simply and literally the word for slave. Talking about slaves. Uh, So the question is, why did the ESV translators choose the word bond servant instead of slave? Well, they actually made an argument for this, uh, which I'll share with you. But um, if any of you have an ESV Bible published before 2011, you're going to see the word slaves in your text. If your ESV was published after 2011, you'll have the word bond servants. Uh, This was part of a revision a committee did to update the ESV text to be more accurate. And so here's why they said they decided to go with the term bond servants instead of slaves. And I think it's informative here. They say that this Greek term doulos, it covers a range of relationships that require a range of renderings. Either slave, bond servant, or servant, depending on the context. Doulos is often best described as a bond servant. That is, as someone bound to serve his master for a specific, usually lengthy period of time. But also, as someone who might nevertheless own property, achieve social advancement, and even be released or purchase his freedom. The ESV usage thus seeks to express the nuance of meaning in each context. And this is helpful because slavery, at the time that the New Testament was written, in the Roman Empire was an incredibly diverse practice. And this word slave was used to refer to a wide array of socioeconomic relationships. And the problem is when we hear the word slave, we think of a very narrow definition, such as might have been seen in American history in the transatlantic slave trade. But in Bible times, this term referred to a far broader range of relationships. Anything, like the translation says, from a servant who might have advanced in his house, had a lot of freedom, anywhere to a slave. And so we actually don't really know where Crete was on this matter, what sort of relationship this is referring to. Uh, But that's not really the point, because Paul's point is how these people in this less-than-ideal situation are to behave as Christians. No matter how lowly you feel in life, how great your struggles, you can live in a way that adorns the gospel, which is really a beautiful truth. Um, maybe, maybe I could illustrate uh, this difference in terminology. Uh, when I think of, so here, we refer to pop. You know, we have a lot of different types of pop. You might have Coke or grape soda or cream soda. I don't know what your favorite kind of pop is. I think mine is probably um, orange vanilla Coke. That is just, if you can find some orange vanilla Coke, it is just, just the best. But anyways, if, if you go a few states to the south, you'll realize that they refer to every type of pop as Coke. So what to us seems like we're asking for a very specific drink, Coke, as soon as you're transported into that culture, all of a sudden, what we think is a very specific thing 
is referring to a breadth of really all sugary, fizzy drinks. And that's what we have with our idea of slavery. To us, slavery refers to this one particular institution. But if we are transported back into Bible times, we'll see that this really refers to a whole class of relationships of all different variety. So we can't um, import the issues with one directly to the other. Make sense? Okay. And so what we get then is when we look at this categorically, getting rid of just our thoughts on specifically what slavery is, we see that what at the core is being referred to here is a relationship of economic authority. And relationships of economic authority are necessary for society. And so we see this in our day as employer-employee relationships, where one person has the authority to manage another, to supervise another. And so it is fitting and right, and nearly all commentators agree, that we can take this idea of this relationship of economic authority with bond servants and apply it to our relationships of economic authority. Okay, so we're not like doing gymnastics by saying, oh, this is just employer-employee relationships. This is really the core relationships of economic authority. That's what we're looking at. All right. Um, Paul's point here is to see how these bond servants should behave. And if you're an employee, just like these bond servants, you have an opportunity in your work to show that the gospel is beautiful by living in the way that Titus is taught to teach. You have an opportunity to adorn the gospel. And you're, you're probably in a far better situation than a lot of these bond servants in Crete were. So let's look at what this text says about how you can adorn the gospel by living as a missional employee. So first, we see the, uh, the overarching description. It says that, take a look at verse 9, that um, bond servants are to be submissive to their masters in all things. So this idea of being submitted, we talked last week, it's about coming under the mission of. So in your work, it means you're coming under the mission of the company, which means you heed the leadership, you listen to their directions, and you seek to serve in the mission. Okay, that's the overarching picture. And then we'll see three qualities within this. The first quality is... Uh, The quality of being, it says, well-pleasing. Okay, this is the idea of working to please your employer, to please your boss, to please your manager. To not primarily be seeking your own good through your work, but to be seeking the good of either your clients, customers, or ultimately your employer. And when you are seeking the good to be well-pleasing to them, that really actually is the surest way to get promoted, to seek the good of others and not of yourself. And isn't that really what we heard this morning? To look to the interests of others before looking to our own interests. The call was to be well-pleasing. Secondly, it says not argumentative. That is, you're not someone who talks back, who disrespects, who's a smart aleck, who give sarcastic responses to your employer, but you're respectful. So that means that when all your coworkers are joining up to complain about the manager that nobody likes and they're going to gripe about it together, you can get in on that sort of friendship action there, you refuse because you know that you are called to respect those who are over you in relationships of economic authority. And you learn to do what Philippians 2, 14 to 15 says, to do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish 
in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So when you avoid complaining, avoid disrespecting, you're actually shining a gospel light into this world. Not argumentative. Thirdly, not pilfering. And not a word we use very much, but this refers to uh, petty theft, really. Taking small things from your company. A little bit here, a little bit there. And so as Christians, we're called to be people who don't fudge our time cards. Who add a little bit here or there to fill out the day. Who aren't inflating their expense reports, claiming personal expenses as company expensive. Not taking little things, thinking that, you know, you deserve it. Um, Actually, very often... Stores get more theft from employees than they actually do from customers. And uh, studies have shown that the reason there's so much employee theft is because employees get this mindset of, well, I, I deserve it. I worked hard. Like, I should be able to take a little extra. You know, take a little bit of that for myself because I deserve it. But as Christians, we're called to a higher way. Not pilfering, but to be people of integrity. People who are trustworthy. And then again, it comes up in some saying that they are those who are showing all good faith. Or we could say, showing that you can be fully trusted. That's what it is to be a helpful, respectful, faithful employee. It means that you don't have to be watched like a hawk to make sure you're doing the right thing. You don't have to be continually reminded to actually get to your work and do it. Because you can be trusted to not cut corners. Because they know that you're seeking the good of the company. And you're going to be diligent to do what is right. Because you're a person who's proven your consistency. And so if we summarize these, is that we're called as employees to be helpful, respectful, and faithful. I'd encourage you just to try to remember those three terms and mark yourself by it every day. Have I been helpful where I'm called? Have I been respectful to those in authority over me? And have I been faithful in doing the duties that I've been assigned? Helpful, respectful, and faithful. And really, this could actually apply to children as well. Boys and girls, you're not off the hook here, even though you're not directly addressed in this passage. You're under the authority of your parents, and um, a lot of times you can feel like an employee at times, which isn't a bad thing. But you need also to be helpful, do more than you're asked, be respectful, be faithful in doing the things you've been called to do. It's good practice for life. And in this way, if you're an employee, you can adorn the gospel in your work, which really is one of your primary mission fields. You have an influence there, and your life, whether you like it or not, it either speaks well of the gospel or it speaks poorly of the gospel. You're either going to beautify the gospel or blaspheme the gospel. You'll either be an example of, oh, those hypocritical Christians, how could anyone trust them? Or of like, wow, even though I don't really respect what they believe, I can't deny how they behave. This person behaves themselves so well. And hopefully that leads to gospel conversations. Open doors. And so seek to adorn the gospel in your behavior every day. This is what we're called to as men, to adorn the gospel by showing forth the beauty of self-control. As church leaders, to adorn the gospel showing the beauty of sound doctrine and sound living. And as employees or children, to adorn the gospel by being helpful, respectful, and faithful. Because this Christian life is a life that makes a difference. It's a life that reflects the beauty of the Redeemer that shows forth in the beauty of a redeemed life. And the last question as we close here is just this idea of how do we live this sort of beautiful life? Because we know that it's not natural to us. You can't be self-controlled if you're enslaved to your lusts. You can't be selfless in your work if you're still enslaved to living for yourself 
And so what we need here, as people naturally averse to this beautiful way of life, is we need to be redeemed. We need to be bought back, bought out of slavery to self, slavery to sinful lusts. And if you feel enslaved to your lust today, the freedom only comes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not in yourself, not in your willpower, but in the one who died to put sin to death, so that buried with him you might be raised to newness of life, redeemed from slavery to sin to be made a slave of righteousness. Redemption, but also renewal. We need to be renewed by the Holy Spirit. Yes, in our conversion, but also every day. That he might be continually making us new. Purifying what is filthy about us in our flesh. That we might be more and more remade into the image of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the beautiful one. And he lived the beautiful life. We get his life covering us by faith. But we're also called to walk in his footsteps. To live this beautiful life even as he lived it. To follow in his ways. To walk in his footsteps. To heed his word. Obeying his commands. Being filled with the spirit that he freely gives. This is the life we're called to live. And we can do it. By faith in Christ. By renewing of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is such plenteous redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. That those who are enslaved in sin, even feeling trapped at the bottom of a helpless pit, that none are so far that you cannot reach them. None are so far gone that your hand cannot save. So we ask you, Lord, to deliver all those feeling enslaved to lust. That you would bring freedom, victory, deliverance. That you would bring new life in Christ. A new creation. Lord, we also pray for the renewing work of your Holy Spirit. That you would renew each and every heart. Refresh us. With, those, um, with those, that overflowing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That grace upon grace. That we would know it every day. That we would seek to be a people who are self-controlled. Who live lives of spiritual joy in the victory you offer. That we would be people who are sound in faith and life. And people who are helpful, respectful, faithful in our work. To show forth the beauty of a redeemed life. Because we want people to know the beauty of the Redeemer. Would you help us to be people who reflect the Redeemer's beauty and speak of his grace all our days. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.